Jed, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's such a pleasure to have you here. We connected after I posted one of my previous interviews with another guest, and we ended up connecting on LinkedIn and ended up chatting. And from that call, it became really clear to me that I had to get you on the show to talk to us all about angel investing. So first of all, thank you for coming on. Well, I appreciate that, Nate. Thanks for having me. Before getting into angel investing and you imparting your wisdom and all your experience in the space, I'd love to talk a little bit about you. And I'm wondering if you can share with us a bit about your background before you got into angel investing. Yeah, absolutely. So I found my superpower after doing grad school, uh, after, after doing my MBA, which I think just really is a, a way of saying I've paid way too much for an education. Um, I, I realized that my superpower is in the zero to one of building new tech businesses. Essentially, I think I thrive in chaos, right? Because there is no rule set and you can make, make mistakes all day long, fluff up and still come out ahead, right? And, and you've got the opportunity to write the rule book, which is what I find particularly interesting. So I started a string of tech businesses, the last one being an API marketplace, the interesting thing about this particular venture was I did it in partnership with a startup in San Francisco that went from five people in a WeWork to raising capital from Andreessen Horowitz to building the world's largest API marketplace together. And, and today they're a unicorn. So we sure picked right. You sure did. And I think around that time, I was working with all of these startups and I just got bit by the bug. You know, and so I started to take a, decided to take a swing on angel investing. I took a chunk of capital from my own pool and put it aside and said, I'm going to go look for some startups and, and put this at risk and see how we go. Right. So I've never had any professional training, never worked in VC officially. Um, and, and I just decided to take a swing of it, which really is more common than, than you would think. Uh, those early bets ended up going okay, Nick, uh, because I got my first exit in my second year. Uh, I invested in another company called Turing.com in 2018. They've turned into a unicorn, and, and so however you count it, I might have done C to unicorn twice, right? So let's agree that there's some data points that suggest I'm not completely terrible at angel investing. There were these early data points that suggested I wasn't terrible at angel investing. So, so the question is, okay, what do I do next? Uh, the classic path in front of most angels at this point is to go down the syndicate route or to start a VC fund. Right? For whatever reason, I, I didn't think I was quite ready for a fund. So I started down building my own syndicate and... It's gone remarkably well, um, far beyond what I expected when, when I first started, when honestly I was just prodding around in the dark. So where I am now is that I've built an investor network from zero to over a thousand investors or LPs as we call them. We've done all of this organically and it's been a fantastic way for us to scale capital. I've basically gone from writing 10 to 20K individual angel checks to writing six-figure checks. And it, it was this crazy side hustle for her for a couple of years where, you know, I was um, literally, literally writing a quarter million dollar check on the weekend as a, as a hobby type of thing. So, so I jokingly refer to angel investing as my multi-million dollar side hustle. It's, uh, this is exactly why I wanted to have you on the show, uh, this wealth of experience and, and the successes that you've had to date. 
Um, really stand out and, and I'm delighted to have you here. I'm intrigued for a moment about, um, you know, what you've done has been really impressive. I'm wondering where you see the angel investment or investing industry going over the next maybe three to five years. Yeah. So I have a core thesis about where the, way, about where the world is going. That, and that thesis is that capital availability is not the problem in venture. Right? There's plenty of capital. Despite what is going on in the world today, governments have been printing money for over 10 years. Right? Uh, what's, why that capital is not being deployed today is, is basically because of risks, not because of the availability of capital. At the same time, there is clearly an appetite for private market investing. If you look at some of the data points out there, Look at equity crowdfunding platforms, right? Or uh, in the initial days, there were these platforms like Indiegogo, right? That that were funding these consumer projects. Uh, today, you have platforms like Republic that that put startups there, and investors can uh, deploy capital. Uh, if you look at, let's say, um, crypto projects and, and ICO, however you feel about it, I'm not advocating for them one way or another. I think all of these things signal an appetite for private market investing, right? So um, my view over the next three to five years is that, you know, this pool of available capital is going to keep growing and whoever can make the market and, and move that capital to efficient use uh, will can seize the opportunity. That's that's a really interesting take. I'm wondering as well: is it that do do you see that more maybe successful entrepreneurs or startup operators themselves are looking to move into angel investment as a asset class to differentiate or diversify their portfolio, um, or is it something else that you're seeing this this growth in in private um, capital? Yeah, I certainly there's a. Um... Let's call it a prestige, right, or 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 a cachet today with with being a founder, whether um, wh whether right or wrong, right? You know, I I to be completely transparent, you know, I, I think um, hyping up the world of startups and how absolutely difficult and brutal and grinding it can be is in some ways a disservice to the people who are considering this as as career choices, right, or or life choices. Um, you know, on the other hand, uh, I, I also think that there are individuals that want to be startup founders, but, but really don't quite have what it takes. Right. And, and, and um, I think there, there needs to be a reckoning and to be honest about, uh, with the ecosystem, right. That, Hey, this world is hard. If you're going to do this, uh, you need to be prepared for it. Right. And I think also. Uh, for founders to get in, like get in for the right reasons, right? You have a high burden of responsibility when you decide to do this, right? If you're accepting investors' capital, you are a custodian of their capital. You have a responsibility and these things come with it um, uh, a heavy burden, you know, a 20-something. Uh, it takes a long, long time to build the CEO skill set, right? And, and, you know, somebody who's kind of coming out of college with, with all the energy and in chutzpah in the world, you know, um, they don't, 
they aren't necessarily quite equipped for that. You know, it does take time to build and, and maybe they don't understand all the things that uh, that come with it. But to your question, I do believe that the people who are innately founders and innately investors, early stage investors, they are two sides of the same persona, right? What draws operators into the investor world is I think more about giving back to the community, not just in terms of capital, but also their the learnings, right? And to help others be successful because, you know, like we described, it's bloody hard. Yeah. Yeah. I think that brings us up nicely onto my next question, which is about the nuts and bolts of raising angel investment. And one of the questions which I think a lot of founders ask themselves in the early days when they are considering raising capital for their business is I've got a couple of different options and the two biggest options out there are raising angel investment or going directly to venture capitalists. Can you talk to us a little bit about why a founder might choose to go down the angel route as opposed to going down the VC route and when either are more appropriate? Yeah, I think the general broad rule is when you're starting out or when a founder is fundraising for a company, you, the way you approach it is to take as much capital as you need to get to the next stage of your business. You want to take the minimum amount of money with the highest possible valuation in order to give up as little as possible of, of uh, your company. Right. So the amount that you raise essentially is going to be a function of the stage of the capital. Uh, and whether you go towards angels or, or VCs, really, you know, it's, it's a function of that maturity. Right. So when you're starting out, it's a lot of friends and family capital, right? You hustle hard enough, you could probably put together, you know, six figures of, of capital in order to, to build a product um, and, and launch something in market. Right. Then you want to take the company to the next stage and to show traction on you go to market and growth. This is when you approach, you know, external angels or, or potentially syndicates uh, to get you to a certain level of traction. And, and then that's really when uh, VC funding tends to go, uh, tends to, to come into play. Right. For, for what VCs do they've got a certain pool of capital that they've got to deploy from, right? So so they need uh, investments that are mature enough to soak up, uh, to take in enough capital, right? It's it's too much work to be, you know, writing, let's say like 50K checks or, or sub 100K checks, you know, for the most part. Do you ever recommend for founders to look to raise from both groups simultaneously? Or is there additional challenges with that? Yeah, I think it tends, you, you can't build a, a two-pillared strategy. I mean, how they could fit in is to, is if you're in a position to do a VC round, you've got a lead investor who will take a good chunk of the round, not necessarily the largest, but that term sheet might come with strings attached, right? They might say, hey, you need to hit a minimum raise of, two or three million, right? We'll give you half of it, but you got to find the rest. Otherwise, the deal doesn't go through. So that's potentially a scenario where founders could fill up the rest of the round using uh, angel checks, 
that uh, makes me think a little bit about something else which has been on my mind with respect to raising angel investment. And that's around the people who a founder should go to. I'm wondering if you might be able to give some advice to founders when it comes to raising angel investment, should they be looking to raise from an individual angel or should they instead be looking to raise from a syndicate of angel investors? And what maybe are the pros and cons that exist for either of those options? Yeah, absolutely. So when a founder is out fundraising, right, essentially one of the hardest bits of this for for first-time founders or, you know, uh, you don't have that Rolodex of people who are going to back you is, that, is the absence of networks, right? The people that you're going to go to are people that you know who already deploy capital. And, you know, if you don't come from this world, chances are there aren't that many, right? So the question is, okay, who do you go to when there is enough suffi uh, sufficient capital there? I think this is exactly where, where um, angel syndicates excel, right? The common trope that you hear from most founders, okay, why work with a syndicate? And they'll say, well, it's a larger check and it's a single line on the cap table. And those things are true, but they're just the byproducts of the value that you're getting from a syndicate, right? So what do we mean by this? Underneath the ability of a syndicate to bring you a six-figure check, What's driving that is a lot of pre-built relationships and inherent trust in that network that takes months and years to build, right? It's not a mailing list. It's a Rolodex of relationships, right? I don't know. Maybe some of the founders listening to this are, are too young to know what a Rolodex is, you know? <laughs> but they can Google us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, but but it's those relationships that we bring. Right and the ability at those relationships is, is what allows us to uh, to compel capital. You know, I think working with a syndicate, you're going to be subject to a higher burden of diligence compared to uh, to working with with individual angels. But again, the price here is that you know you're playing for a, a six figure check, right? You know, for where we're at, writing a hundred or two hundred k check is you know I'd say like relatively trivial at this stage. When a founder is looking to raise from a syndicate, in this case, what should they expect? Should they expect to be dealing with one person? Should they be expecting to pitch to a whole group of a investment committee? How does that typically work for founders? Yeah, I'd say it depends, right? There's, um, with syndicates, there are groups that just uh, are extremely loose uh, in terms of the organization, the relationships and governance, uh, and others that are maybe a bit more established or or mature, or they've got a, a more rigorous investment process that that resembles what you know uh, they might be put through with a VC firm. Right? So it really does depend. Um, I think um, regardless of of how you approach it it's always a good idea for founders to be fundraising ready before you start right so so what does that mean uh well one you need to put together a data room right do you know what goes in there what investors are looking for right the more you get that stuff ahead of time and and have it organized it makes your life easier when when you're going out to do this uh the other thing you know and one of the it's probably something we'll get to a little bit later today is 
uh, how do you approach investors, especially if you don't know them in the first place? How do you get somebody's attention, right? Uh, it's an interesting challenge uh, because, you know, going back to that situation where you're trying to raise capital, you don't have a whole bunch of investors in your network. How do you, you know, how do you get somebody's attention if it's cold, right? It, it's a hard thing, right? And and that in itself is uh, another skill set to learn. We've talked about some of the differences between raising angel investment, venture capital. We talked about some of the complexities of doing so. I'm wondering if you can give the audience maybe your top tips for a founder who's listening to this, watching this right now, and they're looking to raise from either an angel or a syndicate. What are your top tips for one of those founders who are, who's looking to raise now? Sure. Uh my view, and, and this might be just an opinion, right? I, I think certainly there are different people who have different takes on the subject. Uh, one, get your pitch deck together. That one's fairly obvious and, and commonplace. Mm. But it's not just like the pitch deck, right? A, a lot of pitch decks can uh, give away negative signals that the founders themselves don't even realize. So it's a good idea to just put that in front of other investors and get feedback on it. Right, There are times where a company looks interesting at the surface, but looking at a pitch deck, I can pick out a few hairs on the deal that I don't like that make it a non-starter, right? But you can get ahead of that if you know you get the right uh, feedback mechanisms. The second thing uh, I've just spoken to towards was get your data room ready, right? Uh, besides your pitch deck, what do you need, you know? Well, uh, you need employment agreements. You need incorporation agreements for your company. You need IP assignment to say like the, whatever work is done in this company is owned by the company and not by a founder or some other key employee. You need to get your cap table ready. Um, if you've received investment in the past, get all of that organized and sorted so that it's ready when somebody wants to dive in. You know, it, it looks organized, right? And that moves the chances on getting you towards a deal. Uh, I would also say, do your research on investors, right? Be bespoke and personalized and purposeful about who you reach out to. Because the worst thing to get is, you know, assume every investor has an ego. Right? That's probably pretty safe to say. It's just about a truism. Um, and, and it just doesn't work for you to have a generic, non-personalized, mass, cold message, right? It just will not work. You know, it's efficient for you because it seems like you can reach out to a thousand people, you know, in a matter of 10 minutes, but they're just about all going to fail. And the biggest one, I think, you know, for people who are listening to this, this is my number one top tip for what you should absolutely pay attention to when you're out fundraising. You need to write copy for your company around how you introduce your company extremely well. Like, I can't tell you how common it is that I get a cold inbound or, or a message or an outreach from a company who's trying to fundraise. And I'm trying to give it a time of day because I know it's hard. I've been there. And I read your message and I still don't understand what your company does. For, for me, that's that's a non-starter, right? Then everything that you've done down the line, the pitch deck, your data room, all of that is inconsequential, right? You have that 
it, it's like a job interview, right? Unfortunately, you have about 15 seconds to make that right impression and, and, and draw an investor into a conversation. That first outreach, you get so little of time and energy just because, you know, most people are just bombarded. They're busy. You know, I'll spend seconds or less than a minute on that first message. And if it doesn't catch my eye, don't understand it. Like you're done, right? It's, it's, it won't go any further. Um, it, it, it's, and if you think about it, it's something that's fully within your control, right? Write down four lines explaining to me what your company does and why it's particularly interesting. Keep it simple, you know, and just that's, that's your hook, right? Make it dead easy for me to understand, right? Or, or whoever you're reaching out to. So that's my top tip. <laughs> I, I think they're fantastic tips. And I remember some time ago, I was on a pre-accelerator program and they spent an entire day, actually, entire session effectively talking just about nailing down your elevator pitch and the importance of that. If you don't get your elevator pitch right, or, you know, even in written form, you've you've basically shot yourself in the foot. Everything else after that won't matter because the yeah, an investor won't really care um, because you haven't nailed that first part down. Yeah, there's um, something about the, the psychology there, right? When it's your company, it's your idea, you're very emotionally invested, right? So it's, it's easy for us to sit here and say that, wow, that's obvious. But, you know, the, the what's involved, you know, in this whole process is a lot harder to, to disassociate yourself, right? And 100%. Step out of it, right? Just you're approaching somebody for the first time. What do you say? Like, how do you get them hooked? I want to go back to the first tip that you gave with respect to um, obvious mistakes that founders make when it comes to their pitch decks. Uh, and, you know, for those founders who are listening to this right now and maybe are putting their pitch decks together or they've already got one done and they are now hearing this and they're saying to themselves, what are those things that uh, you know, the founders get wrong. What are kind of the top things that you kind of see in, in those uh, pitch decks that you say, oh, no, not again. We should we should be past this by now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so explaining the idea uh, that's, well, making sure that the idea that what, whatever you're doing, that it's understandable, firstly. The second thing is make sure it's differentiated, right? Um be sure to, to communicate why what you're doing, why the approach is different, and why you think it will win. Uh, things that I'm particularly sensitive to. Um, one of them is is equity crowdfunding. Uh, whether fairly or not, right? This is uh, might be a controversial point, but for me, um, equity crowdfunding almost always is like a, a non-starter. Right. Um. I'm looking for reasonable asks on your fundraising, uh, especially when it comes to uh, the terms. So I'll give an example. There was a travel tech company that came across my desk, uh, which ordinarily isn't uh, a space that I would invest in, but I took a, a look at it, you know, because uh, somebody in my network said, hey, would you give me an opinion on this? Um. The thing that really put me off on on the deck was that they had no clear business model on a consumer business, which is always like scary. Um, and they were looking to raise $5 million on a pre-seed round. And on the use of funds, 
the biggest line item that were, they were spending on, 36%, was on marketing, right? So so let's unpack that a little bit. Um, in terms of order of magnitude, the amount that you're trying to raise is completely out of bounds with even the best of markets, right? If you're aiming for a $5 million raise and... Um, you, you need to be aiming for at least a $20 million valuation, right? On a pre-seed company, which is crazy, you know, especially given the, uh, the metrics and the traction that, that we saw. And if there's no business model and your, your single, single biggest line item is on marketing, it basically makes me think that you are fast and frivolous with, um, with capital, right? And, and, you know, you can only grow if you have a pool of capital uh, to deploy from, right? To, to, to burn, right? Otherwise, you know, you can't make this thing grow, right? And at the earliest stages, I, I don't fundamentally believe that, you know, um, a performance marketing go-to-market with no monetization and business model on the other side of it, you know, is a recipe for success, right? So, Jed, that brings me on to another question, which is about valuations and pre-money valuations. So for founders who are listening to this and they want to initiate that conversation with an angel or with an invest an angel syndicate, how should they think about their pre-money valuation? How what model or approach should they use in, in your recommendation and experience? Yeah, so there are these convertible instruments and safes uh, that are quite common in the U.S., you know, and, and relatively well-known in Europe, I would imagine, that honestly are such a godsend for for uh, founders, right? They help you get around this explicit valuation question at the earliest stages of the company, right? Uh, not entirely. I mean, the, these instruments have a valuation cap, uh, which sort of anchors the value of the company, but they they help you get around it, right? It you know, but a cap still exists. I think the way I would think about it is like if you are, if you're out fundraising for the first time, you what you can accept for valuation is going to be a lot driven by the re, the constraints of your local ecosystem, right? Like that early stage money is going to be super local and, and, and people looking uh, around you. They'll have a certain set of expectations that could be very different from somebody in another continent, another part of the world, even in another country, right? So I think that the baseline starting point is, okay, what is common in the kind of companies that are in your sector, in, in your local ecosystem? That's the kind of the way I look at it. Um, and from there, you can move those numbers up and down, those those valuation numbers, depending on any variety of, of factors, right? One is, okay, well, what is the market climate like? Or uh, is there a certain traction that you can show that differentiates you from, from other companies? If you are a, a repeat founder, you might have... Um, uh, a bit more credibility, the ability to command a, a higher valuation, you know, effectively de-risking uh, the company. So that's kind of the way I, I think about it. Uh, and as you grow into like the later stages, uh, when when you get towards institutional rounds, the, the VC firms will, you know, probably tell you 
what valuation they're willing to offer you, right? And, and that becomes the starting point for negotiation. Speaking of valuations and rounds, have you ever had the experience of um, joining in a down round or how do you feel about down rounds? Yeah. Uh, I suppose if I was in the company already and, and faced with a down run, I wouldn't feel particularly great about it. But um, a company that is fundraising on a down round, you know, um, we'll take a look at it. There could be reasons to still get involved, you know, but obviously in that scenario, you lose a lot of the, the bargaining leverage, right? It could be uh, extraordinary terms or things that are expected from uh, new investors, right? You know, if it's a down round and, and for example, your liquidity constraint, um, that's, you know, not a great recipe, right? You're going to take a, a big haircut. We've been talking about these um, different rounds. We've been talking about uh, how to go about raising angel investment. When it comes down to the nuts and bolts then of the documentation that's going to be sent over to a founder and they've got it in their hands and now it's time to, you know, get a legal eye over the uh, the terms. What are some of the terms that a founder can expect that a angel will typically have in their terms um, and which maybe are different from what a, a VC might include in theirs? Yeah, I, I think with uh, working with angels or even syndicates, they're relatively straightforward, right? So, so get comfortable with, convertibles and saves, right? Those will be pretty standard. Now, when it comes to the VC type negotiations, right? Um, we can put the considerations into, into two big buckets. One is, well, the valuation and how much of the company that you're giving up uh, for this particular round. The other bucket of things that you want to look at are, are basically the control clauses. Right. What are the things in, in that document that gives the VC investor control or, or uh, that lets them dictate terms uh, on, on your company? Right. So these can be things like liquidation preferences, which basically means that they recover their initial capital uh, after creditors, of course, uh, but ahead of other equity uh, investors. Right, they they they're basically moving uh, to the front of the line in terms of 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 cash flow. Uh, they could be things like uh, ratchets uh, is another one to to pay attention to. Uh, ratchets basically happen when if a company is having a, a future fundraising that is a down round, like like you just described, Nick, um, and it basically says that, hey, you're not allowed to, to dilute us, right? Or not allowed to dilute our investment. So if that happens, you've got to award the VC additional shares to make them whole, right? So that their, their share in the company um, stays at a certain rate, right? Uh, and depending on how that ratchet is structured, it can be more or less aggressive. Institutional investors are typically going to want to have a, a board seat or two for themselves. What do you typically see with respect to angel investors and an angel syndicates when it comes to board seats? Yeah, I, I'd say the board seats representation and control ultimately becomes a function of how much capital you bring, right? Or at the, to relative to the time that you invested. Um, angels, unless they're highly strategic to the company and they can be an advisor, they're not typically represented on the board. Um, 
I, I think in general, um, if you're investing, say, over a a million dollars or more at, at a seed or A round, you might be entitled to board observer seats, but, you know, uh, no guarantee of board seats, right? It's only um, VCs, when they invest, they've got a mandate to have a certain stake in the company, and that's the time when, um, you know, board control and, and representation like kind of comes uh, comes into play. Jed, we've been talking a lot about valuations and and the the sort of more monetary side of angel investing, but there's a whole other aspect to it which I have picked up and from my experience and also from your experience as well, what you've been saying on this call, and that's that kind of soft side, which is the non-monetary investment that comes along with angel investing. And I'm wondering if you might be able to talk to us a little bit about what a founder can or should expect from an angel investor when it comes to the non-monetary side, as in how can they draw upon their experience or that of the wider syndicate that's investing in them? Yeah. So when we first started deploying capital through our syndicate, a lot of the conversations were being drawn to, hey, what's your average check? Right? Because for the founders, they're effectively vetting us, right? They say, well, how much capital can these guys swing? And, and that dictates how valuable we are to them. And it helps them decide how much to invest in going after that capital. Uh, the way we fundraise now is that, you know, I, I do talk about the sort of investment quantums that, that we invest in, which are a lot higher. Uh, but what I've noticed that really gets the founder's attention is to say like, hey, I've built a syndicate. I have a relationship with every single one of my LPs and I'm backed by over a thousand of them and they're all over the world. And that's the one that kind of gets them lit up about it or gets excited, right? You know, we start thinking about, um, just, just earlier today, I was on a diligence call with an ed tech company uh, that's growing like bonkers right now. And, um, you know, the, the founder made a comment to me that, oh, yeah, you know, we like angels because they want to get involved more, they help, right? And, and so through a syndicate model, if you've got access to a, a thousand LPs and if we do a deal and maybe like 40 or 50 of them come on board, right? And that becomes an extension uh, of our network. And I think the question becomes how can founders best take advantage or, or tap into that? I think here what founders should be doing is um, don't go out and, and put people into uh, your investors or advisors in the boxes, right? I need help with A, B, and C, and, and you know I'm looking to fill those boxes because the nature of what you're building, it's, it's a long-lived relationship. Those needs change over time, uh, and, and you're going to find things that you haven't ever expected. Well, so what's really helpful is to be communicative with your investors, Right, to be able to share with them and let them know that here's how we're doing and, and, and let people feel involved in that journey and uh, be clear about what you need help with, right? Because then um, when you're communicating out to investors with regular updates and there's a standard section there that says, hey, here's where we need help, right? People want to root for you. They want to get involved, you know, and, and so... Um, it's a simple thing, but it's really about being communicative and, and, and articulating what you need help and, and to give others a chance to step up and to to 
to be part of the journey and help you be successful because honestly, we're all rooting for you. Yeah, yeah. And your and your money's on the line as well. Absolutely. What, what format should that uh, communication take? Um, because I've seen different examples of um, founder to investor um, communications. And I, I always kind of feel as well that one sign that um, a company might not be doing so well is that the communications start to trail off uh, and, you know, you start to get a little bit less and less. What do you recommend to founders for communicating and staying up to date with their or keeping their investors up to date with what they're doing? Yeah. What works best for us is, you know what, send out a monthly or no less than a quarterly update. Have a standard template so that it's efficient for you. It's just standard things that you update on a weekly basis. That makes it super efficient for you. You want to be metrics driven and, and to show the numbers and, and the growth and to be extremely transparent about that. Uh, and to your point, you know, when things are not going well, well, this is the journey, right? Nobody nobody gets into this expecting smooth sailing. Uh, so it's expected, right? And, and while that inclination to pull back and to share less when things are going wrong is, is probably the opposite thing that you should be doing. Because people will sense that it just sticks out like a sore thumb. And then people get nervous and then they go to start ratcheting up the pressure on you, right? Which is exactly what you don't need in, in when you're under duress. Yeah. Yeah. People breathing down your neck. When it comes to finding angel investors, uh, what's the best way of, of reaching out to them? Yeah. So... Think of the investor's perspective. Every investor has an investment thesis, right? It's going to be a Venn diagram of three things if you can imagine in your head. One is the sector. What sector does a person invest in or would be interested in? What stage are they going to be investing in? And what, what's the geo that they're interested in? So there's these three bubbles and, and they kind of overlap. I have something I call the, the 70 2010 rule, right? If you think about 100 points and breaking it up into these three buckets, 70% of what drives a person's interest, interest, an investor's interest is going to be the sector, right? People need to understand something to get excited about it. Like, you know, could you ever get jazzed up about something you have like, absolutely no affinity or understanding to it, right? It's just not a very intuitive thing. Uh, the second thing is going to be geo. So 20% is going to be what's driven, uh, it's going to be driven by the geo, like what markets do they focus in? Again, very simple. Early stage, it's local to you. And the last one, the last 10% is, is going to be the stage they invest in. That one primarily is a function of how much capital they invest. Right, a 10k or 20k check, you can play it pre-seed, seed, maybe wiggling in an A round if you're doing a follow-on. Right, that's about it. So, take these three things in, in totality. Okay, how do you prioritize if you have to go out down the route of of cold outreach? There's this great tool going out there. It's just like all the buzz. It's called LinkedIn. I don't know if you heard of it. No, no, I've never heard of it. <laughs> If you go to somebody's LinkedIn profile, right, their professional bio basically 
gives you the exact answer for that 70% question, which is what do they know and what might they be interested in, right? It's really simple. And on the top of their LinkedIn page, you know, it says what country they're in or city and, and maybe um, the uh, where they've worked in the past, right? You know, they could have been in different places. So those two things in totality, you know, they solve you 90% of your question or they give you a 90% guess on when, when you're reaching out to somebody cold and, and trying to target, right? So it's not rocket science. Um, and if you go through this, I think the odds of, of success, making a successful first contact, they, they'll work in, they'll go up tremendously, right? Rather than sending a thousand message, messages to like a random people. Yeah. Yeah. As an angel investor, what are the top two or three red flags that you kind of come across frequently enough and you say, these are things which once I see them, I'm like, no, I I'm out. I think you've actually covered one of them earlier on with respect to equity crowdfunding. Um, yeah. But I'd be interested if there are any more. And actually, and, and actually, if you're willing to, maybe if you could talk a little bit about why equity crowdfunding for you is is such an, a no-go. Sure. Um, so um, the the cardinal sins, I, we might be rehashing a little bit, but um, the besides the cr equity crowdfunding, and that's like very... That's that's an opinion that that's very much me, right? I don't think it, it's commonly it's all that commonly held. Maybe it's a fifty fifty thing, um, but um, when a founder is reaching out to me and and I don't understand what they do, right? That one is like a, a big thing. You you basically, you know, your job is to sell the company, right, or to sell customers. In this case, you 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 fail to. You know, you can't even communicate your own company or product, it, it's a very big red flag for me. Uh, the other one in, in my view is when founders are trying to fundraise on, on pure vaporware or slideware. Right. Uh, you know, to caveat all what I, why I'm saying this, you know, I invest mainly in software. I like investing in software because I think software is cheaper to scale, right? There are a bunch of new servers or, or, or cloud infrastructure and you can grow and, and you can keep uh, growing like that. You don't, it's not like hardware, which is called hardware because it's, well, it's bloody hard. Um, so, so as a software investor, um, for somebody to come and fundraise without the ability to have built something and put something into this already, you know, I, um, it, it's a bit of a deal breaker, right? It either means you're too lazy to put in the work or you don't have the technical chops to do it, right? Either which I think are are glaring holes. So let's go back to the other point about equity crowdfunding. What is the issue there? Um, by and large, the business model of equity crowdfunding platforms is to take a slice of every dollar of capital that they move through the platform. Right. They generally do not play for um, a slice of the upside. They, they generally do not take equity in the company. Or if they do, it's skewed highly towards the upfront fees, typically 10% of the raise, and then a, a, a tiny portion might come uh, out of the equity in the startup. So, so my issue there is that it skews the incentives of the platform to focus on making the market with diversity of deals 
volume of deals to show a flavor for every person who's on there to try and move capital. And it goes against, there's a fundamental tension with that approach and having the best quality companies or investing time to do diligence to curate that, right? It's a very hard balance to thread. You know, I know um, some of them do to, to for better or worse degrees, um, but it's a fundamental tension that I think it's very hard to, to get rid of. Another issue with equity crowdfunding is that if you look at the average check sizes, they're very small. We're talking about hundreds of dollars, maybe up to like $1,000 would be a, a big ticket. Essentially, we're talking about throwaway money for most investors, which means that the people backing the company, by and large, haven't been, haven't invested enough to diligence the company. So the amount that the company raised uh, is not indicative of the quality of it. Right, simply because of the smallest check sizes. Um, yeah, and, and so these, and, and I think the third point is that uh, a company that is fundraising on equity crowdfunding, it, it's in contradiction to what I do as 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 a syndicate. Right, this is like a, a matter of like different incentives. Right, for me, I run the deal. I put a lot of work into the diligence. Uh, I have a minimum check into it, which is going to be a lot higher than an equity crowdfunding platform that takes a percentage of the initial capital, but zero, uh, zero percent carry. Whereas we're just about the opposite, right? So I don't particularly like having, you know, it seems a bit in conflict for, to participate in a fundraising where somebody might go, well, okay, I could invest there, right? I'm not paying 20% carry. It, it diminishes like the work I do, right? Uh, yeah, so so these are the three buckets. I guess the first two are more fundamental, uh, critical things in my view. The third one just happens to be, you know, this, this um, in a way, competition, right? Between the source of capital on, on the crowdfunding platform versus like my syndicate. I have a final question with respect specifically to angel investing and it's and it's about that sort of deal flow side of things i see from time to time people who are effectively representing startups and are saying i will work with you founder to find investors for you and then i will take a cut of an act of the action they're not investing themselves typically from what i'm they're seeing. brokers they're brokers what is your perspective on on brokers? Yeah, I think the dynamics come down to the the same uh, pressure points as equity crowdfunding, right? Uh, I'm not saying brokers or equity crowdfunding platforms don't have value uh, in this ecosystem, but from the perspective of an investor into the company, if somebody is bringing the deal to me, and their incentive is a share of capital, uh, it's like um, the investment banking business. Yeah, they're trying to make a deal. And after that deal, they're basically cashed out. They've got zero alignment or incentives to work with you for the long term. Well, you know, until they've got another deal and they, they think you're a, um, a source of capital. Right. So um, I wouldn't say that we would categorically never do a deal like this. Um, but 
I generally, you know, am adverse to it, I'd say. Understood. I think this conversation has been really informative and I'm absolutely positive so many people are going to be trolling through this and making notes and coming back. It's been fantastic, Jed. I'm wondering though, is there anything that I haven't asked you about angel investing, which you think, you know, something needs to be really mentioned to founders or or a last parting piece of advice for founders who are looking to raise angel investment? Yeah. So I think for for um, founders, if you are looking to raise capital, like do, do think about the syndicate option, right? Uh, people who do run syndicates like myself, and I'm not plugging my own, there, there are lots of people that do this. Uh, what you're getting are, you know, dozens or hundreds or thousands of pre-built relationships, uh, and they have the ability to move that capital for you. There is an exchange. They're going to have a high degree of diligence and, and work. They're going to put you through, ask more questions, and, and they need, you need to be prepared to, to do that, right? But if you can do that, uh, I think there's something magical that happens when we decide to back a company. Suddenly, our incentives change and we are really maximally aligned with the founders because now we love this company we've decided and we want to back them to the maximum degree. So we like really lean into the fundraise to make the deal happen, right? Um, but yeah, and, and it can be a really... I think healthy and, and symbiotic relationship, right? So uh, maybe I'm biased because I'm running a syndicate, but you know, um, I think they're certainly worth considering. You know, if you're trying to to pull together a quarter million dollar check rather than you know hustling around for you know fifty five k's or something. As we're approaching the end of our conversation together. I'd like to just touch upon exactly what you've been talking about there with respect to your syndicate. And and also maybe if you could talk to us just a little bit about uh, Angel School as well. Yeah. Is it okay if I put something on screen, Nick? I'd love that. So I guess in conclusion, Nick, uh, I'll just like talk quickly about what we do at Angel School. Uh, if anybody's interested, our website is angelschool.bc. I've developed a program where we help angel investors become super angels. So what does that mean? We're going to help you do that by building and running your syndicate. So I teach an eight-week playbook program where we help angels learn all the fundamentals around leveling up their skills as an angel investor and then building a syndicate to bring capital to bear with it. Uh, and after this eight-week program, I invite all the angels to come sit on my investment committee. So they, this becomes a forum where they can work on real deal flow, build their investor networks alongside me before they go off and, and do it for themselves. And so if anybody sees this and they're interested to learn more or chat about it, uh, I'm more than happy to. Uh, I'd love to to connect. This is amazing. It's a really interesting uh, program that you run. I've been doing my own research into it as well. It's very exciting. For people who are interested, you're saying this is for angels, effectively to become super angels. What if somebody's watching this, they're saying, oh, I'd like to join this, um, but would I qualify? What are sort of the criteria that you typically look for for somebody to join? Yeah. So there's a few ways to get involved, right? One is that if you're starting out in angel investing and you just want to see great deal flow, 
uh, you can go to our website, go to the For Investors tab uh, and apply to invest and, and you know we'll have a chat and I'll share my deal flow with you. There's no strings attached. You can invest in every single deal, nothing or somewhere in between. And you get access to all my diligence on all of my deals, right? So it's a great way to learn. Now, if you've done this, if you've done some angel investing and you think you really want to get serious about this and level up, this is where the fellowship program is uh, in matters, right? This is the part where we take you and go from one to 10. What we recommend to the investors who are interested in this is you need some basic angel experience because I won't cover the basics, right? This is purely about taking you to the next level. Uh, we go super fast. It's pretty intense. So first thing we look for is basic angel experience. The best proxy or the best indicator is you've invested in maybe two or three companies of your own. So we know at that point you've got capital, you've got the risk appetite, and you've probably read a few term sheets and convertible notes and, and understand the basics. The other thing that I screen for is does this help you get to where you want to be, right? Does this help you get to the next level and, and how much do you want to, to do this? Because effectively, I've taken six years of angel investing experience, six or seven years, three years of syndicate building experience and compress that into eight weeks. I can tell you what to do and more importantly, what not to do. I will help you enforce 20% carried interest from day one, from every from your minimum check to a six-figure investor. No issues there. But I can't help you if you won't put in the work. So people need to be prepared for that, right? So we basically laid the trail, but you still got to walk the miles. Wow, it's a really exciting program. And I'm sure people watching this uh, who have any interest in angel investing uh, are looking at this with uh, a, a lot of uh, lot of desire to, to become part of one of your cohorts. Um, so yes, I, I strongly recommend anybody who's watching this who's, who's interested to, to go to the site and look to apply. Jed, thank you so much for all of this, for joining me on the call today and for imparting so much experience and so much wisdom around angel investing to the audience. I know, as I said earlier on, for sure, people are going to be sitting down, taking notes, going back and, and, and bookmarking uh, parts of this episode because there's just so much there, especially for those people out there who are looking at raising angel investment for themselves in the shorter or medium term. Um, so yeah, I'd just like to say thank you so much for coming on. And I, I really hope that we can do uh, another show in the future, uh, maybe focusing a little bit more on the investor side down the line uh, when that time comes. Yeah, I'd love that, Nick. I appreciate you having me as well. Thank you.